Welcome back to the Revolution Ideology Podcast. And uh, today we are continuing with a theme that uh, Dante uh, had brought to us uh, when we started this whole trying to connect spirituality to anarchism. And we discussed Taoism and its uh, reflexive relationship with anarchism or perhaps applicability to anarchism. Is there room in anarchism for spirituality? And we did – if you haven't uh, had a chance, check out those episodes. There's one episode on just a general history of Taoism and then there's a second episode that uh, tries to synthesize Taoism and anarchism maybe successfully, maybe unsuccessfully. We'll let you, the listener, draw the conclusion. But it is an interesting enough question that it got now me thinking – about a spirituality that, while I would never lie and say I'm a, a strong practitioner, but one that I've always been really fond of and spent a lot of time researching and thinking about, Sufism. Can Sufism also, like Taoism, have certain anarchist undertones or can it inform anarchist undertones and vice versa? And so we decided to do the same thing as we did with Taoism. We want to have two episodes, an episode where uh, today we will be talking about the history of Sufism and where applicability may guide us towards some anarchist undertones, and then an episode specifically discussing is there uh, Sufism in anarchism or is there a reconcilable relationship between the two of these things, a spirituality and then anarchist philosophy, which tends to most of the time be very atheistic. So is there room in in anarchy for spiritualism. With Taoism, we think there might be. Now we're going to maybe test Sufism. So before we move any further, my name is Jared. I'm Nick. And I'm Dante. Welcome back. Let's uh, let's get this show on the road without further ado. Before we do that, though, I guess I'm not getting the show on the road quite yet. I have a couple of important disclaimers that I do feel like I need to start this particular uh, episode off with. Sufism, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for us to frame Sufism in a more kind of like macro sense the way we were Taoism, not because Taoism presents any one type of practice. In fact, that would be very un-Dao, but at least the Tao tends to always kind of, at least people that are studying the Tao always tie themselves back to, of course, a foundational set of documents that are compiled in the Tao Te Ching. That's not the case with Sufism. Sufism um, it calls on a whole bunch of different sources, different poets, different dervishes, different orders. There are dozens of different types of Sufism within within the the various like confessional um, purview under Islam, and that's the second part of this. Sufism does operate under one of the Abrahamic faiths. Islam, which some would argue instantly kind of like removes its ability to have any other anarchist undertones, but we'll debate that later. Which leads me to another disclaimer. To properly probably engage that, I'd have to do an entire history of like Islam and then tie it back to its foundational set of documents. First, the Quran itself, uh, or if you're a Muslim, the perfect word of God. And then the hadiths of various um, important players in the framing of Islam during the time of the Prophet Muhammad himself, peace be upon him. I don't have time to do that. This episode's not about, like, Islam. It's not. So what we are going to have to do is operate under just, like, the common understanding that Sufism did start and probably still remains as a derivative or a different term type of interpreting Islam in comparison to the more popular uh, Islamic... um, confessions, whether they be Sunni or Shia or what have you. 
don't know that I've explained that very well, but uh, you guys kind of understand what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, you guys got it. So the audience is going to get it then too. <laughs> I'm not trying to do an entire history of Islam. I'm just trying to get to Sufism and discuss and engage. Is it possible to have Sufism and anarchism together? Do Is there any correlation? Let's go. So as far as Sufism itself, historically, let's get through some of this real quickly so we can get to actually like the, the belief or the various forms of belief. Its origins are kind of shrouded in mystery. Like if you go and do the research, just even general research for like I'm, – I'm a history guy. But like general research, even on things like Google and stuff, there will – you'll find dozens of different websites that argue that Sufism started at X time by X practicer, etc. And no one really comes to full disagreement except in one case. It all happened. The original practitioners – did live during the time of the prophet Muhammad, whose Western dates are 570 to 632 common era. I do think the fact that it's shrouded in in somewhat of a mystery and no one really agrees upon it already starts us off on kind of like a good note in associating with anarchism is that like it's not necessarily – there's no one way of thinking about the framing of Sufism. What do you think of that? No, yeah, I I agree that. The fact that there's no, like, this is the one person or this is the one historical context or this is the very specific, like, initial foundational document, like you said, that already kind of lends itself to this anarchist way of thinking already. I mean, they all do attribute, all orders attribute themselves to some, I mean, yes, the Prophet Muhammad is wildly important, even within Sufism. Um, But as far as, like, yeah, the one doctrine, we could argue the Quran or the various hadiths, but even among like uh, more mainstream Muslims, there's debate among which hadiths, those are the, the, the actions and sayings of Muhammad himself from primary sources, are not agreed upon. So there's still no agreement there either. Um, anyway, various practitioners, detractors, and outside observers all kind of have a vested stake in trying to frame Sufism's origins a certain way, um, which is important because Sufism is highly moldable. But when I say stakeholders there, when I say stakeholders in Sufism, I mean practitioners of Sufism want to validate it by, of course, tracing its origins back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Its detractors in the Islamic world also want to debate its validity by throwing in their weight behind things that might challenge Sufism as a valid practice of Islam. Um, and then, of course, there's outside observers, which we'll talk about here in the West, that also want to trace its origins back there, but also attach a certain Western understanding of it. And this comes to another disclaimer that I accidentally forgot, but I'm throwing it in now. Oftentimes, Sufism is framed especially in a Western lens, as Orientalist. It's like we here in the West almost romanticize it, and some accuse us of making it something that it was never meant to be, of almost... And one thing that we we would argue, they would argue, is that even attaching any anarchist undertones to it would be molding it in a way it was never originally meant to be molded. So that's something I do have to mention, and I'm sure there are a listen, there is a listener or two that would probably call us out on it. I'm disclaiming it now. There might be a little orientalist and romanticized understanding of Sufism that reveals itself in these two episodes. Well, yeah, so. I mean, just the action of trying to apply Western anarchism to it is a blatant example of that. Which yeah. we're going to be guilty of. We sure. are going to be guilty of it. Um, but I would argue, in my interpretation of various Sufi texts and practitioners, 
that that's kind of the way it should be. And, and I feel a little bit, I feel a little bit, um, privileged in this regard, being of Iranian heritage and having, of course, like the Iranian, uh, uh, translations of a lot of these things, although we'll borrow from Edward Fitzgerald on a couple of them as well. That, like, you know, I feel a little bit more connected than the traditional Orientalist, but maybe I'm just making shit up now. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Um, the word Sufism is usually translated from uh, Tasawuf, which mean its meanings ranged, at least in the ancient world, or the, excuse me, the middle-aged world, from those who wore wool, wool to wisdom to purity. Just this one word having different translations into English. What are your thoughts there? That's kind of, that's a little like anarchist. Well, maybe not anarchist. Let's go with Taoist. These different ways that we can interpret language. What do mm-hmm. you think of that? No, I think it my mind instantly goes to like discourse theory and the power of language. And like when we get into different ways of interpreting even one singular word, like that opens itself for a lot of freedom of interpretation and giving meaning to things and so on. Yeah. I I think that uh, the translation of it kind of lends itself to being like applicable to like anybody who wants to hear, you know what I'm saying? Wants to like learn about the philosophy or uh, anything like that. So I feel like, I feel like that's kind of important in that regard. Yeah, certainly, definitely, Sufi would gravitate towards calling it wisdom or purity to, again, celebrate their belief. Those who wore wool sometimes could seen as, like, derogating by other Muslims at the time. Those are just a different type of people. That's kind of like othering. So it's interesting that these different translations and, – and these translations come from languages as diverse as, like, Arabic to Farsi um, – don't think I'm using any Turkish translations in here, but, you know, somebody can check me in the comments if I am. During the time of the prophet himself um, is a key point, as we've talked about, in perhaps framing what Sufism would become. More, most sor- sources, Sufi or otherwise, argue that the Islamic-inspired asceticism and mysticism of some sort did start during the time of the life of the prophet himself, even if they weren't calling it Sufism back then. Real quickly for our listeners, um, what is asceticism, Nick, our sociologist? Uh, so it's, I always tell my students, the easiest way to think of it, I'd define it as doing without. So in the religious context, it's like doing without luxury possessions, sometimes worldly possessions. It's, uh, I explain thinking of like a monk living in a monastery, mm. doing without, yep. you know, like, et cetera. As a religious practice. Yeah, we might have talked about it during da- the, the Taoist episodes too, but I can't remember. Anyway, we also might have talked about it in the Protestant work ethic episode. Oh, yeah, for sure. We I might think have done we did. it there too. Anyway, th- we don't expect everyone to listen to every episode. but it, well, yes, Actually, do. we do. We do. Yeah. We do. Comment, <laughs> like, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> Patreon. Nick does that. He knows more about that stuff than I do. I'm just going to talk. All right. Anyway, mysticism as well, attaching things that some people might see as, like, dogmatic or... Um, paranormal, whatever, certain practices that may be seen as more traditional and perhaps outside the traditional practice of Abrahamic faiths like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, those were also going on during this period of time, which is natural. Again, uh, some people might even call them pagan rituals or what have you, but that's how conversion works. You synthesize what you're doing with the new belief structure. Of course, it's not going to go like one day I wake up and I am practicing this way. And now that I've become a Muslim the next day, I instantly forget everything that I used to do. Like there is going to be a synthesis of belief and that happens in the spread of all world religions. All right. Um, whether it actually qualifies as the beginning of Sufism is something that people debated through the middle ages and some even today. Um, if it qualifies as what we call Sufism, but there was definitely asceticism and mysticism during the time of the prophet. Um, 
Islam itself, I already said as a disclaimer, I am not going to teach the entire history of the foundation of Islam, although we may do that in the future if we feel like there's enough demand for it. Um, it is something that I think is very important for people to understand if we're going to bridge the gap between Western understanding and the actual practices and beliefs of Islam itself, where there is a huge, clear disconnect. But regardless, I do need to mention that Islam itself has a revolutionary founding. It is revolutionary in its founding. The Prophet Muhammad was revolutionizing society against corruption um, at the time, the corruption of Meccan merchants, of the uh, higher class system, revolution against inequity, revolution against, I mean, even the abuse of women. All of that was going on during uh, his revolution that more or less began in 610 and, and, and perpetuates honestly through today if you are a practitioner of the various confessions uh, under Islam. So I just need to state that like many uh, religions of the past, to include Christianity as well, it started as a revolutionary movement, which does give it give our connection that we're trying to make in this podcast some credence, right? There is some, a revolutionary ethic already built in. And then Sufism sometimes could be argued as revolutionary within Islam. Okay. Um, some Sufi claim the prophet himself was a Sufi, although I do believe that is somewhat of a stretch. But what they're doing is they're, they're arguing that these early Sufi, if we want to call them that, which is debated if we can, saw the prophet as a Sufi himself and pledged their allegiance, uh, by ah, um, into following the Sunnah, which is the trodden path is the rough translation of that into English, the Sunnah of the prophet and even his bloodline. I would argue that in and of itself to counter my points is very unsufi and unrevolutionary and certainly no connection to anarchism in this following of bloodlines and so on and so forth. So what I'm trying to do in this history is present parts that might work and some parts that won't. And I don't know that this follows into any sort of anarchist thinking of following certain bloodlines or anything like that. What do okay, you so just to help me contextualize and like locate all of this. So are all Sufi Sunni? No. Okay. Su Sufi, it's not even a separate branch in and of itself because there's so many like small dichotomies. Sunni follow the trodden path. Shia, of course, need the bloodline. Some Sufi say you need to follow the trodden path. Some say you need to okay. follow the, the bloodline. So some Sufi can have developed from Sunnism. Some can have developed from Shiism. And we'll actually do examples of both as we move forward. All right. But that's a super good question. Um, okay. Anyway, some followers, especially in um, the town of Medina and later Me Mecca, began to internalize their faith. When I say internalize their faith, Islam in its just most basic translation, what the Prophet Muhammad was trying to teach was submission. That's what it means. Islam means submission. And those who submit are Muslims. Some followers of the Prophet thought the best way to fully submit to the way of Allah, who Allah is much less defined than the Judeo-Christian version of God. So that in and of itself is a little bit, it's important. Allah is not nearly as defined as he would be in the Judeo-Christian tradition, which also shows a little bit more of the Eastern influence uh, making its way into what we're talking about here. But they thought you had to internalize the faith. The reason I'm bringing up these practicers, practicers or practitioners during this time is because Sufism does internalize your interpretation of Allah. There's a lot more internalization. Hassan al-Basri was one of these such practitioners. He challenged the Umayyad Khalif at the time, which is basically like the leader of the Islamic world during his life, 
and he preached against materialism and worldly pursuits. We would not call al-Basri a Sufi, but we would say this early practice of teaching against materialism and worldly pursuits important in framing Sufism, and it does share some common practices with what we want to talk about in this podcast. What do you think? And we can even tie this back to the Taoist episodes as well. Yeah, I think I think for me, from what you've been saying right now, because I, I like that you're doing this history because I did like a like a quick yeah. history on, on yeah. Google and it didn't really go in depth as you yeah, did. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I read the Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think that like even if like every, the structure of Sufism isn't necessarily inherently anarchist, I feel like the, the poems that are provided to uh the philosophy is has like undertones to it, um, so I think that I think that's more the important part in my mind. And if you were really trying to stretch it, like maybe we are, we'll admit it, of connecting connecting like anti capitalist mindset to the eighth century here, if we really want to go that far back, which we are, preaching against materialism and worldly pursuits is like capitalism does not exist in the eighth century by any stretch of the imagination, at least not as we know it, but it is kind of a foundational start. What do you think, Nick? Your, so, your, your, your wheels are turning. I see it. I think we might have a fallacy in just connecting anti-materialism to anti-capitalism. I cool. don't know if those no, are both the same thing. Okay. For some people, obviously it is, but I would say probably for a lot, it's not. A lot of anti-capitalists aren't also arguing to, they aren't primitivists, right? They're not okay. giving up their material possessions. They might just be against exploitation, et cetera, right? Like many socialists probably aren't also like anti-materialists. Some of them are, but some of them aren't. True. Anarchists, probably the same thing. I mean, I could have done a lot more history on the Umayyad, but one of the things that the Umayyad would eventually, the Umayyad Caliph, basically those that seize power uh, and control Islam for a century and a, about a half to a full century, is that they, they began to abuse like the distribution of resources, especially the zakat, which is the charity, and they started to build palaces rather than like mosques and things along those lines. So this is him kind of critiquing them. So the materialism to him, was also attached to not just idolatry, but rampant socioeconomic stratification. Here's an interesting quote. Exist in this world as if you had never set foot here, and in the next world as if you had never left it. It's It would be a loose interpretation to attach that to like anti-materialism, but there are undertones there. Um, Abu Hashim would be another early contributor. He himself is even a contributor to Hadith himself. He's accepted as a valid uh, writer of Hadith. Um, and he lived around 716. Okay, so just for our listeners, what is Hadith? Well, I kind of mentioned it real fast earlier, but Hadith, so the most holy scripture in Islam is the Quran. It is the perfect word of God. But for other things that you need to understand or other ways to interpret faith or practice faith, the hadith are your second go-to. The hadith are the primary source accounts of the sayings, ways, even judgments of the prophet himself. So they would be the people that were like around the prophet, seeing how he conducted himself, seeing how he worked as a qadi, which is a judge, and then writing about it. And if you can't find an answer to all of life's questions in the Quran, your second place you would go is the hadith. So, like, this is such a massive stretch, but is it, like, the Gospels? A little bit. Yeah, I don't – I guess I've never made that association. I mean, we could argue a little bit. There's a little bit there. But there is debate, just like with the Gospels, of which is valid Hadith and which is not. Right. Um, so, yeah. But Abu Hashim is considered a, a valid contributor to Hadith. Anyway, according to Jami, who is a very respected medieval scholar, he is considered the first Sufi. Um 
I don't know that I agree with it. I have not collected any of uh, Abu Hashim's sayings because I'm really trying to get to the Middle Ages here. But some are, are – Jami, who is a respected medieval scholar, says Abu Hashim is the first person that he would call a Sufi. Another early contributor to this uh, branch or under undertones of Islam within Sufism would be Bayezid Bistami. Um, and his title is the Sultan Ul-Harafin, uh, which translates into English as basically the king of the Gnostics. And I like that because it maybe makes a connection with what Nick was just saying. Gnostic gospels are usually not accepted by mainstream Christians, but they are accepted by a whole lot of other people. And Bistami is, in at least in Islam, called the king of Gnostics. So it's kind of interesting that this early possible uh, Sufi, who at times was also considered a – why can't I think of the word – um, blasphemer also be called the king of the Gnostics. Anyway, he was a 9th century Iranian um, scholar who emphasized the importance of religious ecstasy in Islam. In his words, he sought drunkenness in faith. Uh, the, the translation is, is washed or uh, shakur, uh, two different translations there. I'm emphasizing this because not because it's anarchist. Drunkenness and faith is very unanarchist. But it is kind of challenging the notion of any like practical reason within your within practicing your faith. Not unlike the Taoism, in this case, a very internalized, and that's important in Sufism, understanding of of faith in this case. And when I say internal, it means you can individualize it. And in this case, maybe even challenge the power that religious scholars or imams have over the production of knowledge and your interpretation. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it's very spiritual. It's very faith-based, very not, I would argue, not anarchist, but very individualistic. Okay. The second part of what uh, Bastami was able to provide this type of, of philosophy, if we even call Sufism a philosophy, he is usually credited as the main contributor to the idea that is now paramount in Sufism, self-annihilation of the ego. A lot of Sufi point to him, and I will get to the more like, you know, famous people, the Rumis and so on and so forth that really write about this. But Bastami is usually credited as the first person that believes for you to achieve at least true understanding of the divine. I'm not saying enlightenment like I would in Buddhism or or maybe even Taoism, but True understanding of the divine, which in Sufism is undefined, not nearly as defined. It's not God isn't some like gray haired dude, you know, sitting on a cloud throwing lightning bolts everywhere. And he certainly isn't a blonde haired, blue eyed dude on a cross. The divine, it's why I'm not even using the word Allah right now, is usually much less defined in Sufism than it even is in traditional Islam. And the best way to understand that or achieve any kind of contemplation of the divine is through self-annihilation of the ego. What do you think of that? I mean, it goes a lot to the what you're just talking about, about how it's like individualized and how to experience the divine. You have to destroy yourself first. To, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to add. I think, I think it's, it's pretty much tied to like a... Putting yourself like not necessarily last, but like thinking of others as well as yourself and not trying to like don't look don't look at yourself in this high regard that you're like better than anybody else or you're more enlightened than somebody because everybody is equally has the access to becoming 
to annihilating their ego to become like one with everybody. Rumi's about to define this much better for us. So let's kind of like move in that direction. The reason I did this whole part, maybe we took too long on it, is Sufism is what we would call relatively undefined and even debated in its for in these first couple of centuries. But when Sufism definitely becomes a big deal is what we here in the West would call the Middle Ages. And that is like not debated because all of the famous uh, poets that I sent you are all like Middle Age poets. Like this is when it becomes like this is when it does become like Sufism, Sufism. And it's very difficult to debate that. There may be a listener that will comment and say they could debate it, but it is a difficult debate. Sufism's golden era also coincides, however, with Islamic's, the Islamic civilization's golden era as well. And that's important for us to understand. But this is the time when Sufism is either formalized or proliferates or diversified. There's debate there. Can you formalize Sufism if it's more individually understood? I would argue no, but there are people, especially in some of the orders out there, that will argue it had to be. We'll come more to this debate in just a second. But it does coincide with the peak of Islamic civilization under the Abbasid Khalif. So they, the Abbasid basically seize power from the Umayyad in a revolution and become the major practitioners of formalized Sunni Islam in uh, the 750s. They establish a capital of Baghdad. They establish the very famous Baghdad House of Wisdom. I'm mentioning this because Sufism was almost guaranteed to proliferate during this time period because the Abbasid Khalif for the most part, is championed as a peak not just of Islamic civilization, but world civilization. To give our listeners an understanding, the Middle Ages in Europe are the Dark Ages in many cases for certain reasons. Not always. Some will debate me that Charlemagne was all right and whatever. But regardless, it's the Dark Ages. The church is like burning knowledge and shit, even knowledge of Europe's past. In the meantime, the Islamic world is taking a lot of that knowledge and improving on it. Things like algebra and geometry, all of these things, philosophy, astronomy, they're reading these ancient Greek and Roman works. They're also reading their own ancient works from like Zoroastrian priests and so on and so forth. All of this is coming together to create the Islamic golden era, which is also Sufism's golden era. Basically, it's a proliferation of knowledge during this period of time. The reason for this is intellectualism in the Islamic world was often viewed differently than it was in the West. Um, and when I mean the West, I mean Europe. In other words, during this time, the West saw intellectualism and the study of like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, unless you were attaching God to it, as kind of heretical or maybe uninformed. And if you follow that path down the rabbit hole philosophically or mathematically or astronomically, that you might be able to eventually challenge the existence of God and thus the authority of the church. And so it was highly frowned upon. Contrast that with the Islamic world at this time. They thought the opposite, that the more you knew, especially under caliphs like Harun al-Rashid, that the more you know about how the world works, whether scientifically, mathematically, astronomically, philosophically, you're not challenging the existence of God. The more you know about it, the more you're celebrating the existence of God. And so that's what is important here and why the Islamic world flourished while the West was kind of floundering in its own ignorance during this period of time. I mentioned this... Because that means the Islamic world, as it's expanding during this period of time, is now synthesizing different knowledges from Asia to North Africa to Southern Europe as it makes its way into Spain. Islamic civilization is, of course, expanding. And so it's taking all of the knowledge of these places that it's expanding into and bringing it into its fold so that it can further understand its knowing of the world. What do you think? 
Naturally, though, what this is also going to do is it's going to present certain challenges to various Islamic leaders. I'm, I'm kind of painting it with like a broad rainbow brush right now, but there are definitely Islamic leaders that had a problem with this because if you start trying to synthesize Greek philosophy or uh, uh, various mythology from like, you know, Egypt or Libya or something along those lines or even philosophy from East Asia like Taoism or Buddhism, it could challenge their authority. So individual leaders might have had a problem with this. And this is where the Sufi really begin to push back and and move Islam, even all of Islam, forward through the way they begin to practice, what they study, and most importantly, what I sent you guys, poetry. I didn't talk about this earlier, but I do feel like I need to mention this now. Poetry, for the longest period of time in this region of the world, was the highest form of art. For various material and ideological reasons, poetry is how you deliver um, not just like narrative or information, it in and of itself is something that is respected. In contrast to the West, which was more interested in like material forms of art to ex ex exert their messages or their power, you know, immediately coming to mind are like Greek statues and things like that. And I'm not, I'm not shitting on those. They're, they are badass. I'm not, but, but poetry was something that is, more tied to this region, whether we're talking about Iran or Arabia, where like law codes like the Marua were all oral and you had to memorize them, poetry played the crucial role. Well, that persists through the Middle Ages. So poetry, intellectualism, um, all of these things work together during the Middle Ages to basically grow not just Sufism, but honestly, global knowledge as well. And, and that can't be understated. Okay. Let's dig right into this. I'm going to talk about some of these intellectuals and these poets, and uh, we're going to discuss their contributions to at least Sufism, if not maybe in some cases a little bit of uh, anarchism. We'll debate that. So I sent Dante and Nick uh, some excerpts and poems for from a couple of different people. So they they've probably just recently read them, and me being super into this for a long time, I've been sitting with these for for decades at this point. Um, these guys, uh, I think just about every one of them I'm using, and I'm going to show my bias. If you are a Sufi and you happen to be listening to this, this is the Iranian bias coming in. These aren't Moroccans. These aren't Pakistanis. These are all Iranian poets. So sorry, this is my bias. The first I want to start with is one of my favorite, Omar Khayyam. I'm going to be blunt. This dude probably wasn't even a Sufi. Some people attach certain Sufi traits to him, but he wasn't a Sufi. Omar Khayyam uh, lived between 1048 and 1131. The reason we have such accurate dates from Omar is he wasn't just a poet. In fact, poetry was something he wasn't even that famous for. He was most famous during his time as a mathematician, as an astronomer, as an astrologer, as a philosopher. He was da Vinci 500 years before da Vinci. He was a man that did all kinds of different things. In fact, the Jalali calendar that is still used in Iran and Afghanistan, that's his calendar. Um, he wrote so many treatises that improved, uh, ancient Greek mathematics. Uh, he's, I mean, he's improving upon Euclid's theories. He's got theories of parallels. I mean, even the X in, in math, in algebraic equations, like three X equals 15 or something like that. The X, many attribute the placement of that X to Omar Khayyam. It, it comes from the Persian word shy, which meant unknown. Um, when that word made its way eventually to Europe and into Spanish in particular, they, uh, when they spelled it, they used X-A-Y, and eventually they just dropped the A-Y. It's an interesting story. It's legend. I can't necessarily give you in-depth sources on it, but it's part of the legend of Omar Khayyam, just to show 
that this was a well-respected dude during his time. Some argue if he wasn't a Sufi, he must have been an agnostic. Some argue if he wasn't an agnostic, he must have been a nihilist. And some argue if he wasn't a nihilist, he must have been an atheist. Omar Khayyam is such a major personality in the uh, 12th century that what I'm saying here is Sufis sometimes trace some of their ideas to them. Atheists trace some of their ideas to him. Nihilists trace some of their ideas to him, as do agnostics. People can't figure this dude out. Um. Anyway... Uh, as far as a quick life bio, I don't have time to go through his entire life. Um, I do recommend, like, obviously there's great historical research on Omar. There's also um, a historical fiction that's used a lot of historical accuracy to tell his story that I assign oftentimes in classes. It's called Samarkand, and it's written by a man named Amin Malouf. It's an amazing book. It's not just the life of Omar. For you video game players out there, it also covers the actual real foundation of the Orders of Assassin, of Assassin's Creed fame. Uh, all of that's in this book. Um, it's a super good book, and it goes through his life. But real quick, who was this dude? He's born in Nishapur, um, which is a city in modern-day Iran. And eventually, he comes, after a couple of journeys, he comes uh, under the employ of the Grand Vizier of the Seljuk Empire, a man named Nizam al-Mulk. Nizam al-Mulk eventually allows him to become like the grandiose intellectual of his empire, and this is where uh, a run-in with that order of assassins may or may not, people debate, historians debate this, um, led to, of course, uh, Omar eventually becoming a poet as well. The only reason I'm mentioning this is Omar was an intellectual living in an empire while also able to challenge that empire through his poetry. And the reason this is important is it's his poetry was the only safe way to challenge the empire. Why would I say that? It's kind of similar today how satire is often used to challenge people and nobody makes a big fuss about it. But back then it was poetry. You could use poetry to challenge empire because it was such a respected like art form that you could do it and you would be respected for it, whereas if, I don't know, for example, if he chose not poetry and to take up, like, swords against the empire or something like that, it might be different. Yeah, if, if he just made, like, a speech just out in the street saying, like, yeah, fuck the government or whatever, like, people would be like, all right, calm down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, one of his most famous – what Omar wrote are called, like, Rubai, and he wrote them in quatrains. Quatrains basically mean, like, little four-line poems, and he's not the only one that did this. It was a very popular form at the time. But one of his, one of my favorite little four-liners from Omar can kind of like maybe, maybe uh, clear this up a little bit for our listeners who are like, what the hell are you talking about? Okay. This is from Omar. He says, they know nothing, neither do they desire to know. Men with no knowledge who rule the world. If you're not one of them, they call you infidel. Ignore them, Chaim, and go your own way. It's super simple, but there's a lot there. They know nothing, neither do they desire to know. Men with no knowledge who rule the world. If you're not one of them, they call you infidel. Ignore them, Hayam. Go your own way. He's called our readers ignorant. He did. And they have no desire to even learn. They have no desire to learn. And if you don't think like they do, you're what? He uses the word infidel here. At what least that's that? what they call you. Yeah. Right. right off the bat, again, if we're in our project here, maybe making some Orientalist assumptions... I mean, is there a little bit of, like, anti-authoritarianism here? Oh, yeah, for sure. I don't even think it's, like, veiled. <laughs> okay, I just want... I'm checking in with you guys just to make sure. <laughs> make sure I'm not out of line. Maybe I'm making some leaps that shouldn't be made. 
I didn't send Dante or Nick that, but I did send them this, the actual Rubaiyat of Omar Hayam. And I want to dig into just one or two of the quatrains in here as well and maybe analyze their anti-authoritarian sentiment and maybe even their uh, agnostic or nihilistic sentiment. The Rubaiyat is one of the more debated works from this time period, but I am going to be reading from the translation into English by a dude named Edward Fitzgerald who translated it like way later, 1859. The reason I'm mentioning this is it rhymes and the likelihood that it, that something that rhymes in English also rhymed in middle-aged like Persian era slim to none. So what we're assuming here is that Edward Fitzgerald took some creative liberties while trying to remain true to the, the actual like original meaning. So one of my favorite parts of this Rubaiyat and honestly one of the most famous um, even here in the West because Omar actually, believe it or not, became – very famous here in the West. He was widely read up until about the 1970s when uh, education programs changed here for various reasons. But this is the Rubai. Number. number seven. Come fill the cup and in the fire spring the winter garment of repentance fling. The bird of time has but a little way to fly and lo, the bird is on the wing. I'm only mentioning that one not because I want to analyze it, but I'm just trying to say Omar Khayyam was saying YOLO in the 11th century, 12th century. That's all that one was. That's not anti-authorian. It's basically saying, hey, like you're going to die soon, so go do what you want. But if we really want to do like analyze it, like from an anti-authoritarian standpoint, what is he telling people to do in the 12th century here? He's saying to live your life. Don't, yes. let, don't, don't let these dogmatic like religions dictate how you live your life. I love it. Anything you want to add to that, Nick? No. We're moving on to number 13. Some of the glories of this world. Man, you're making us do Roman numerals. I know. All right. Some of the ro- some of the glories of this world and some sigh for the prophet's paradise to come. Ah, take the cash and let the promise go. Nor heed the rumble of a distant drum. It's kind of the same sentiment. And this is where he's kind of un-Sufi and unmaterialistic. He's basically saying, get yours. What do you think of that? Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I would call that like kind of anarchist or anything like that, but but it's very clear that Omar Khayyam was his own man, mm-hmm. and he was against authority. Um, I'm gonna move on the same page to now. I'm screwed up on Roman numerals. What is that? Number eighteen. It's number eighteen. Think in this bar- battered caravanassery. For those that don't know, a caravanassery would be like a middle aged hotel. Think in this battered caravanassery, whose doorways are alternate night and day, how sultan after sultan with his pomp abode his hour or two and went his way. Basically saying on the road, king after king comes, and then they always go. It's kind of a metaphor. Kings in real life come and go. What do you think, Dante? I think that's kind of interesting because of the fact that, like, why are we trying to – he might be saying, like, why are we putting – these people in such high regard, even though they, they come and go like we like they come and go. So why we put them in such high regard, we should just live our life and not worry about this authoritarian. And like, I like further, it. the people are the constant, right? Mm-hmm. The leaders come and go. The people yeah. are always there. Yeah. Which gets us to this next one, which is 27. Next page. Why all the saints and sages who disgust of the two worlds so learnedly are thrust like foolish prophets forth, their works to scorn are scattered and their mouths are stopped with dust. It's very similar, but basically saying all the smart people that lead you and talk about like the two worlds, like heaven and earth and all that other stuff. What's going to happen to them? 
they're going to die. And whatever they say doesn't matter anymore. Yep. That's that's where the nihilism comes in. Because Omar's kind of one of those sages himself. Mm-hmm. He's considered like the smartest man of his time. See, I will say about this. I feel like the, he did this in such a way that's like, I know this is interpretation, so it might not be, like, like you said, the exact way that he said it. But I feel like it is something smooth about like how this is written. And also, it challenges authority without directly saying what he means to say. And I feel like that's the trick to it. And I feel like that's the most interesting part about this. But that is my little caveat. Mm-hmm. The next one's pretty good too, right below it. It says, Oh, come with Or Chaim and leave the wise to talk. One thing is certain, that life flies. One thing is certain, and the rest is lies. The flower that once has blown forever dies. It's a very similar sentiment except for this one part. I love, the rest is lies. So what's that one thing you think he's talking about that's certain? Death. Okay, I mean, I would agree with that, but it doesn't have to be. Poetry, you interpret it on your own. And Omar would want you to interpret it on your own. But you think it's death. What do you think it is? I kind of, I kind of think it's death too, but... I, I think it's life and like okay. love for people, especially life and love for people persists or just love persists no matter what. You know what I mean? Even if, even after you die, you still have a love for like a lost one or something like that. So I feel like that's what he might be saying. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. I think we're going to move on so we can actually get to so, to actual Sufi because I am going to take a stand here. Although Omar Hayyam is arguably one of my top 10 favorite historical figures myself. Like I do love this dude. He wasn't a Sufi. I think some of the Westerners are wrong in calling him a Sufi. In fact, I would argue based on both what we're reading here and his bio that I unfortunately did not give you, he leans a little bit more. Nick might dig this dude a little bit more towards nihilism. I feel like he's he's more in that that vein. So we may revisit um, Omar when we have a future episode on nihilism. That's coming up here in a little bit as well. Okay. From Omar, though, we do get some actual what we would call Sufi masters during the Middle Ages. And so uh, what we have here, you know what? I'm not even going to give a preview. Let's just get to him. The master. That's what he's called. The Mevlana means the master. Uh, we in the West know him as Rumi. He's actually Jalal Adin Muhammad Rumi. And he lived between 1207 and 1273. Why is he the master? Uh, just so many reasons. Everything this dude wrote was fire. It was powerful. Some call him the birth, not just of Sufism, but of the religion of love. Um, he, to this day, is the most widely read po- poet in the world to include the United States. Type in Rumi in Google and go to images. You're going to see a bunch of beautiful images with some cute Rumi quote. And that's fine. I'm not like even making fun of it. Like if people got to get wisdom, they got to get it however they can. And that's the beauty of Rumi is one little quote you can ponder for like days, maybe even longer than days. Like, I mean, the dude... He is Rumi, like he is the master. Um, and he is the master because dating, going all the way back to what I said about this dude, Bastami, back in the ninth century, Rumi is the one that really came up with the poetic verse to discuss overcoming ego, annihilating the self. That's what Rumi was about. The word he would use is a Persian word called, word called nafs. Nafs perfect translation is not ego but i think it's the best thing i can kind of like provide our audience overcoming your nafs your sense of self 
Um, as far as like a quick life bio, like how did he get to become this master? Well, no one starts a master. No one's born a master. Sometimes life experiences kind of take you there. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the bio, but again, this dude's so famous that there's numerous like historical fictions and recreations of his story. One of my personal favorites that I also assign in class is written by a Turkish writer. Shout out, uh, Elif Shafak. She wrote the very famous book here in the West called The 40 Rules of Love. And it kind of like one of the critiques of the book is it tells the story of Rumi um, and it coincides with the story of like an American lady who also then eventually like like in the modern era that like overcomes her sense of self. It was a, a literary device that Shafak decided to use so that it, it would be more relatable to Westerners like like Rumi's life. And some people critique her for kind of like selling out a little bit on that. But I don't think so. I think it's an amazing book. I must stress you it is a work of historical fiction though that is inspired by um, – by the actual life of, of Rumi. Anyway, dude was born in uh, Balkh, Afghanistan. And uh, because of the various invasions of the 13th century, namely like Turkic and Mongol invasions, his family's forced to leave Afghani uh, Balkh, Afghanistan. And uh, eventually they move to Anatolia, which is modern day Turkey, into a town called Konya. His dad was already like a religious leader, a figure, and a teacher. And once his dad died, Rumi himself becomes uh, a mulvi, which is this this like spiritual teacher, this Islamic teacher. He studied though what he studied mostly. He knew a little bit about Sufism. He had he had studied Sufism as well, but he he was interpreting. Eventually, he's forced to become kind of a qadi, a more strict interpreter of Sharia law in in Konya, and uh, he's a very respected leader in the city. And then he has a chance meeting with an amazing wandering ascetic, a dervish named Shams of Tabriz or Shamsi Tabriz. Basically, his name translates to the sun, like the sun in the sky of Tabriz, which is a city in Iran. Anyway, it's his meeting with this dude and eventually them becoming like the best of friends that really begins to inspire like the man Rumi would become, the, the master. Shams challenges him. He challenges him to challenge everything he thinks he knows about the world and the practice of Islam and all of these things. And he runs Rumi like through the ringer. Like, I mean, he's doing some offensive things if you are like a traditional practicing Muslim. Shams takes Rumi to like a, a tavern. And that, you know, and, and that's haram. That's forbidden in, in Islam. You're not supposed to go drinking. Like alcohol is forbidden. He doesn't go there and make Rumi get drunk though. What he does though is takes Rumi there and makes him look at all these people that he may have called sinners or whatever and see them as people. You know what I'm saying? And then of course, legend has it that he then took all of Islamis or Islam, Rumi's books and threw them in the fountain, destroying his books. The things that he thought had all this knowledge and he challenges Rumi. There's no knowledge in those books. Just like Omar said, like they're, they, they, those people are dead, man. Knowledge is here in the heart. You need to look here internally, look inward for knowledge and you will know what's right. He even made Rumi go to a brothel. Again, not to hook up, um, but to actually humanize, in this case, a, a prostitute, an escort and bring her home and live with her and like, uh, and, and, this was annihilating Rumi's ego because the minute you see Rumi in a tavern or throwing books in the fountain, like respected books in the fountain, or hanging out with a prostitute, what are the people of Konya, the town, saying? They saying like, "Oh, you just random dudes to you? Like, who, who is this person?" Yeah, and he's associated with all those people, and he is destroying Rumi's respect. The townspeople are stopping to; re they're not respecting Rumi. He is destroying Rumi's ego from the outside first. That's what this was about. Self-annihilation, as we talked about, of the ego. 
Eventually, uh, Shams had done this so long that he made some enemies in town. And in theory, again, this is kind of, you know, whatever. There's debate here. But a, a remaining member of the Order of Assassins is eventually paid, some say by Rumi's own son, to kill Shams. And they do. Shams is dead. They kill Shams. And it breaks Rumi's heart. Dude is a broken man. And it is then that he began to write poetry. It is through breaking him, completely breaking him, that he began to find a new meaning. And so like, I mean, even his first great work, the, Divya, the uh, Divan e Kabir, or like the, like, and it's dedicated to Shams. Like that's his first great work is this dedication to Shams, this like dude that was like his best friend. But this heartbreak is the important thing. In it, he comes to this realization. And um, in case I, I, I kind of want to cite some sources on this one. Um, he comes to some of these, uh, understandings through, um, sorry, I'm looking for the actual author on this right now. Arash Naragi would argue that this is where he comes to this idea that heartbreak and love are the only lens in which we can view the divine and our understanding within existence and creation. I'm going to read a little bit from Arash Naragi here in a second. I'm not even going to read from him. I'm going to paraphrase. And I know Nick and, and Dante probably referred to this real quickly, but I'll explain it to them as well. But before I do so, I kind of want to uh, have a discussion real fast with both of them. Why would merely losing this really your best friend, your great love, not a romantic love, but your great love, why would this transform a man? I think it has a lot to do with, like like you said, he was working through destroying his ego. And then when this happens, it shatters his entire worldview. Emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, he's shattered. Yeah. I think I think it really makes you realize, like, and, and take, that we take for granted what we have. And then, like, for him to just lose a person that he loved for his whole life, it really probably is a, a lesson that he learned to, like, take everything serious and take everything for what it's worth. And I don't know. I, I think he might be trying to make a connection that like nothing is uh, forever. And that like we, that. Yeah. nothing is forever and that we need to appreciate it while we have it. To give you some idea on the way Shams also like kind of like uh, annihilated Rumi, I am going to use some of Elif Shafak's like translations and interpretations of these like 40 rules that Shams taught Rumi. So I, I want to give give our audience some ideas. And again, I must stress this is coming through the lens of a 21st century Turkish author, but she she's a well-respected author and does some good research. These are some of the things that she argues Shams may have been teaching Rumi. You can study God through everything and everyone in the universe because God is not confined in a mosque, a synagogue, or a church. But if you're still need in an, but if you're still in need of knowing where exactly His abode is, there's only one place to look for Him in the heart of a true lover. I mean, that's pretty clear as day. If you want to know what like divine essence is, don't go to church, don't go to the mosque, don't go to the synagogue. It's here. Some would even argue like modern five percenters in like New York City believe that though. Yeah, I mean, I don't have time to teach five percenters, but yeah. Like, that's kind of like, God is here. I don't know. What do y'all think? No, I agree. This is a little bit Taoist right here. This is rule six. Most of the problems of the world stem from linguistic mistakes and simple misunderstandings. When you step into the zone of love, language as we know it becomes obsolete. 
That which can't be put into words can only be grasped through silence. Remember that first Tao we read last time? Like the Tao that can be named more or less is not the eternal Tao. It's, it's similar, a little bit there. It's a little bit there. Um, anyway, I mean, these are just like some of the, the various things that he's being taught. But eventually this leads to like self-annihilation. Uh, rule 20, fret not where the road will take you. Instead, concentrate on the first step. That's the hardest part, and that's what you're responsible for. Once you take that step, let everything, uh, everything you do, what it, let everything do what it naturally does, and the rest will follow. Don't go with the flow. Be the flow. That's straight. Yeah. I know. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, so there are like connections here. It's super weird. Anyway, again, I want to get into actually like what Rumi said, and because uh, that's not Rumi. That that again, that is a 21st century interpretation. Um, all right. I just brought up another scholar here on the topic, Arash Naragi, and he wrote a super short like little article uh, called Rumi's Religion of Love. And what he does is he also is trying to frame it for us kind of like Western thinkers, like what was Rumi teaching in the thousands of poems that he wrote? How do you achieve overcoming your nafs? Well, Naragi argues the reason humans suck a little bit, um, and I, that's my word, not his, Um the reason humans suck a little bit is we're suffering. We're suffering two things. We're bored and we're anxious. Those are the two things that we're suffering from. First, I want to just ask Dante and Nick, what do you think of that? That's it. Those are the problems with the world. Humans are screwing up because we're bored and we're anxious. I mean, it might be too simple, but... Yeah, I think it's a little too simple and it's a little... <laughs> it's a little too... Uh, like, it's, it's obviously more, but I would agree that those are two things that we do suffer from is boredom and anxiety. But... Um... I, I feel like I feel like our anxiety is caused by something, right? Which they they go into detail here of what that source is. So I think anxiety is too complex of a topic. It's much there's more to it than just that. You know what I mean? So yeah, Naragi argues that Rumi said our anxiety comes from like feeling disconnected, that we're in these empty vessels. And what Rumi seems to think is we are disconnected from creation. Rumi doesn't spend a lot of time like really – again, it, it, it's very unsufi to define God. God does not have to be like God as we know it here in the West. God can be like the Tao in Sufism. It really can, undefined, just like – it's a, just a word for like this something bigger than us that we can't understand. It's that simple. And Rumi thinks we're anxious because we're disconnected. Like at one point we were part of this thing, this big divine essence, and he equates it to an ocean. But – for whatever reason, we've been dropped out of the ocean into these like little vessels called humanity. And we're spending all of this time being anxious, trying to get back to that ocean. That's that's really interesting. I, I, I like that analogy a lot because I feel like if you, if you think about it in, in a sense, like God or the essence of God and I like the ocean part, uh, part you say, like our human body is like that little bowel, right? And we are so separated from one another that we feel anxious, we feel lonely. And if we only connect to people that's around us, I feel like then we get a little glimpse of what it feels like to be a part of the whole again. And yeah, that's I, like exactly that. right. I think that along those same lines of like, we're so individualized and individualistic that we've separated ourselves. I mean, for me, it doesn't have to be like the divine. It's just from like humanity and the natural world. And because we have these, very specific individual identities and we separate ourselves off from nature and from other human beings and from so many things that we feel this anxiety. And I think Rumi would be down with you taking that liberty. Like it's, it's this, this separation from the natural world. 
The next metaphor that is attached is, all right, so how do we overcome this boredom? He are, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on boredom. We're bored. That's why we wage war and create things that we don't need and buy things that we don't need. All of that is like because of boredom, like all of it. Like, and, and it is. It's cause and effect. I need more resources so I can show off my status. And you guys have probably all heard our other episodes where I rant about this. But he's arguing all of that started because we were bored. And all of the chain reaction from ancient statecraft to modern capitalism could be argued as just us being bored. Um, is it oversimplified? Maybe, but I, I, I like it. Okay. How do you overcome that? How do you understand what you're supposed to be and where you're trying to get to? Fall in love. That's the answer. And that's why Rumi wrote so much about love. And when I say fall in love, for Rumi, it wasn't always romantic love. His great love was not his wife, unfortunately for her. It was Shams. Um, and they just, they had a connection. A connection that is like unheard of. The reason he says this is the only way you can even get a taste of divine essence is because the only time we dumb humans in our lives ever really annihilate ourselves, our ego, is when we love somebody and put them above us, which is much more rare than we think. I know listeners are like, oh, I do this all the time with my husband or my wife or my partner or my kid. Ooh, I don't know. I like. I think we like to say it. I don't know that we like to do it. And I know that's kind of a controversial thing to say, but I don't know that we really do it. I don't know that that's a thing that we really commonly practice here in the West. The point where you are willing to do everything for that person. I think the most common example is parent and kid. I think most parents would just lay down their lives for their kids. I, I'm willing to say that. I don't know in other cases. I don't think romantic, especially not in the romantic sense. No, divorce wouldn't be so high if that was yeah. the case. <laughs> I would say we definitely do it with kids. But sometimes you just have that connection with somebody. And when you make that connection, the only time, he, Rumi says the only time that he at least thinks we really put ourselves annihilate our ego, give up everything we are. We become humble. We'll do anything. We will, she will even do embarrassing things is when we're truly in love. What do you think of that? Yeah. I, so just as a quick little thing, I have been studying love for like probably about a good year or two. Cause I'm like, why are people so afraid to say they love another person in like a non-romantic way? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think it's because we have in like this Western idea, like perverted, like what love really is. Yep. And, and we are afraid to say it because we're afraid to truly connect to another person. Um, it's also so overly sexualized. Yeah. I was Western like, there's culture. fake masculinity yeah. attached to it too. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel like, yeah, like I even forgot the, the question. I'm sorry. I, no, I we're good. <laughs> but this, so idea, I think that yeah. I like it. It's super romantic, obviously. My only hang up with it, like, I don't know if I agree with it. That's the only way that you can truly, like, annihilate yourself. I don't know of another way that you can, but I'm not <laughs> sure that that's the only one. You know what I mean? I don't know. Okay. I like, mean, I could think I... of, like, all kinds of things of, like, let's say the dude that goes and lives out in nature for a decade literally by himself. Like, is that case, is he loving nature? Is he, like, you know what I mean? Like, but I have to assume that that completely destroys your sense of ego. Mm -hmm. something like that obviously that's rare but you know what i mean like i think there's got to be other ways well and love is the english translation some words especially when we're translating from rumi wrote in numerous languages but persian was one of the, the foremost some words just don't work well in english and there mm -hmm. are numerous interpretations of this type of thing and numerous different persian words for it and we always just codified it into love yeah. which is english is a very limiting language in many many ways especially when it comes to abstract concepts Okay. Anyway, how do you reveal this love? Another metaphor, mirrors. 
you know this is the case. When you are truly in love, you are a mirror, and your partner or your friend or your child or your dog or whoever that great love is, is the other mirror. And those mirrors, if you put them in front of each other and face them, reflect endlessly. And that lo- thus, the love between the mirrors reflects endlessly, and it is only in that space in the mirror, between the two mirrors, excuse me, that we can even remotely understand divine essence. It's in that space between the two mirrors that reflect endlessly. It, it's not saying that is the divine essence. It's saying that's a little baby taste of what it is. Yeah, you think it's infinite, that. right? Yeah. yeah. You're, you're thinking of something, Dante. I don't yeah. want to leave too much like whatever, like dead air. No, no, like, no. Yeah. I, I just, th- I, I think is is more so like when you look inside yourself. Also, using that little mirror analogy, when you look inside yourself and you can see like yourself and you, like your essence or whatever people want to call it in other people, it makes you feel more connected to another person. It makes you want to love that person and not want to like do stupid shit to people, like yeah, oppress them or exploit them or anything like that. So I feel like. I feel like if you if we do look at each other as if we look at each other as ourselves, then and we're supposed to love ourselves in theory, then we will love everybody else. Okay. Yeah. I also think that like people are horrified to look inside themselves because it's like like you said, two mirrors pointing at each other, this like infinite void. When you look inside yourself, it also is infinite, right? It's you like get lost in this void and have to f- navigate your way out of it every single time you're self-critical and you actually take the time of like looking inside yourself. I think that like people that if you have any experience like meditating extensively, you've got a little tiny baby taste of this, right? And like sometimes it's horrifying and sometimes it's like super fulfilling and it's everything at different times. Funny enough, a common Sufi practice is meditation, not just prayer. They do pray like traditionally, a lot of of pray pray traditionally like traditional Muslims, but there's also meditation. Anyway, um, the mirror metaphor is also a critique of another metaphor that was common during the time that, that your spiritual essence is, is, is a lot of people said that it's like a bridge, like we're here and you're trying to get a bridge to the next place. Rumi said bullshit for numerous reasons. Like the bridge means you no longer need what you cross the bridge. You don't need what you left. And he argues that's the problem. That's not how love works. Yeah. It's not like a means to an end. Exactly. He argues that's the problem with the way we frame all religion. That it is a means to an end, and that's where we're all going wrong. Christians, Jews, Muslims, he called them all out. Because at that time, when he lived, religions were actually, sadly enough, less divided than they are now. Muslims, Jews, Christians, they had, because of various historical contexts and circumstances, had to live together. So there, he's well aware. I mean, even in that 40 rules, he's not calling out mosques. He's calling out synagogues, churches. Rumi, even after he died, was celebrated by numerous Jewish communities during his time. They still, some of them still uh, go visit Rumi's grave. I mean, it's, it's, he was, he was a worldly man. Um, okay. There's a couple of quick little sayings in this one that I want to talk about real quick. One of my favorites, if love's pulse does not beat within a man, let him be Plato. He's but an ass. I just like that because he's shitting on Plato a little bit, which is kind of funny because I like Plato, but I still I'm, I'm I'm able to deal with the fact that he's shitting on Plato. Why would he shit on a man like Plato? Yeah, I laughed at that too. I thought it was funny. I like Plato, but like, why would Rumi like? What 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 was Plato's deal? Like, I mean, he does the allegory of the cave stuff. I mean, you think Rumi and him would get along on this? But I mean, he's not a romantic by any means. Okay, he's arguing that Plato is too like stoic and intellectual like there's too much thinking and less feeling Mm. it's not enough there 
I don't know if that's right or wrong. I mean, as an academic, I, I definitely do a lot of thinking myself. So I definitely, but it's still interesting. It's interesting to think about that this very well-respected like philosopher that Rumi had read like ad nauseum, it, he, it's not enough. He so, doesn't so get it. He still doesn't get it. So much of it is like political philosophy from Plato mm-hmm. with like absolute exclusion of emotion, I think, which is probably where Rumi's coming from. We're going to switch now to actually read some of Rumi's poetry rather than me just describing Rumi's poetry. Let's let's actually read some poetry. Um, we're only choosing a couple. We don't have time. He has so many poems. We're just going to choose some of my favorites. And unfortunately, we get the bias of my favorite poem of all of human history. Nick's had to hear this, I don't know, at least dozens of times in my lectures, but he's going to get it again. It's called The Field. Out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. Today, like every other day, we woke up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. That's fire. Okay. I'm a, let's break it down. I want, I'm going to break it down and then I'll get their interpretations real quick. So that first like little stanza, my favorite part actually, out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. What do you think, Nick? So like, as you know, I'm doing so much work in the like research on nihilism right now. Like if there was ever, there is not a more nihilist statement than that one. It's moral nihilism, right? Beyond wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a place. I'll meet you there, right? Straight up. We think Dante. I agree. I think that's that's actually funny that you brought that up. Wrong and right are mere constructs, and Rumi's saying, throw those away. Let's meet somewhere where there aren't those constructs. And the field, of course, is a wonderful like metaphor for like this big open space, not a closed space. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So I thought about the annihilation of the ego and of the self when I read even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. We have lost all sense of who we are as individual beings. And we have become part of this, whatever he would call it, the divine or the essence or whatever, the Tao, the whatever. So I don't know. I think my, my thing is, I just, for you, like what, how is that, that second part a nihilist? Um, no, I don't think the second part. Oh, okay. Just the first sentence. Oh, the first sentence. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Okay. I mean, the first, the second part we could argue is like self annihilation, yeah, like yeah, yeah. self right, like identity uh-huh. nihilism or something like that. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. The reason why I say that is because I feel like it's more so like you, you, you're laying like your soul on the ground for everybody to like uh, hear, like hear it, quote unquote, hear it, and just like open up for like a broad discussion. So like us, me, you. We doesn't even exist because we're trying to just lay it all on the table or on the field. Yep. Today, like every other day, we woke up empty and frightened. Obviously, this goes back to the anxiety and boredom. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. So Rumi, a former scholar, teacher, is telling, don't go read. Mm -hmm. Why? Why don't go read? That doesn't have the answers. The answers aren't there. Just like Plato doesn't have the answers. Mm Mm-hmm. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. Why a musical instrument instead of a book? It's emotional. Yeah. It's love. It's yeah. beauty. It's creation. It's. 
I don't play any musical instruments. I'm an idiot. <laughs> no, I straight up, you and I have talked about it before. If there was one area of like knowledge that I wish that I had, it's music. Yep. 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 There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. That is clearly anti-authoritarian. Like, obviously, as an Islamic teacher, like, we know how the prayer works, right? Five times a day, whole process, different prayers for different times of day, head must go all the way down, touch the ground. Even before that, I've almost forgot ablutions, make sure you're clean, hands, feet, face. Like, there is a, a very regimented process there, and Rumi's saying, no process. Pray however you want. And there are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. You can celebrate the world, divine essence, any way you see fit. That's anti-authoritarian. Yeah. Did you, I should ask, you all read these little ones. Did you like any of them? You want to choose one real quick? Or? Um, so. While you're, while you're thinking, I'm going to do this say yes quickly real quick. Forget your life. Say God is great. Get up. You think you know what time it is? It's time to pray. You've carved so many little figurines, too many. Don't knock on any random door like a beggar. Reach your long hands out to another door, beyond where you go on the street, the street where everyone says, how are you? And no one says, how aren't you? Tomorrow you'll see what you've broken and torn tonight, thrashing in the dark. Inside you there's an artist you don't know about. He's not interested in how things look different in moonlight. If you're here unfaithfully with us, you're causing terrible damage. If you've opened your loving to God's love, you're helping people you don't know and haven't ever seen. Is what I say true? Say yes quickly if you know, if you've known it, from before the beginning of the universe. We'll let the audience kind of rest on that one. What'd you choose, Nick? Uh, my favorite was Quatrains. Okay. For years, copying other people, I tried to know myself. From within, I couldn't decide what to do. Unable to see, I heard my name being called. Then I walked outside. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. I love that one. Yeah, that's really good. I, I put I put that as I like that one, but I just didn't know why. <laughs> I couldn't. I, I, I don't know. Why I mean, I'm don't going. go back to sleep is like one of the best parts, right? Like I like that one. Uh, my favorite one though was uh, is this one. It's uh, those who don't feel this love pulling them like a river. Those who don't drink dawn like a cup of spring water or take sunset like supper. Those who don't want to change let them sleep. This love is beyond the study of theology. Uh, that old and trickery and hypocrisy. If you want to improve your mind that way, sleep on. I've given up on my brain. I've torn the clothes to, to shreds. I've thrown it away. If you're not completely naked, wrap your beautiful robe of words around you and sleep. Yep. I like that one. All right, let's do one more roomie and then we got to move on real fast. But I do like this one only because it's a critique of this kind of ties back into why we're doing this. I would argue it's kind of a critique of authority. A man talking to his house. I say that no one in this caravan is awake and that while you sleep, a thief is stealing the signs and symbols of what you thought was your life. And now you're angry with me for telling you this. Pay attention to those who hurt your feelings, telling you the truth. Like my favorite, like exactly what Nick and I teach in a classroom. That's Rumi like right there. Like basically your life, life is a journey. You're on a caravan. Life, life is a highway. No, um, <laughs> life is a journey and you're asleep on it. You've been told to go to sleep. Your leaders, your storytellers, your 
priests, your rabbis, your imams, your presidents, whatever, your kings, they keep you asleep. But now you tell me I'm a thief because I'm telling you to wake up. I love that part. And then you get pissed off at me. This is actually kind of like Plato. Just like those prisoners got angry at the dude that came back and tried to free him and like, hey, come outside and see reality. Why do those people get angry? I mean, we can spend time talking about it. We already have, but you get the idea. That's why I love that part of that poem. Anyway, giving and absorbing compliments is like trying to paint on water. That insubstantial. Here is how a man once talked to his house. Please, if you're ever about to collapse, let me know. One night, without a word, the house fell. What happened to our agreement? The house answered, Day and night, I've been telling you with cracks and broken boards and holes appearing like mouths opening. But you kept patching and filling those with mud. So proud of your stopgap masonry. You didn't listen. This house is your body, always saying, I'm leaving. I'm going soon. Don't hide from one who knows the secret. I'm being a little bit modernist here, but I also associate with the, the house with the earth like the earth has been telling us for a minute stop doing what you're and maybe this is like my environmentalist slant but whatever i associate it right there it's telling us stop and we're not stopping yeah anyway we got to move on we could spend a whole episode on Rumi by himself but we are we we are uh we are in need of moving on a little bit i mean real quick before i move fully on we have a general understanding of Rumi. what were your thoughts i mean you knew Rumi because i mean we teach together mm-hmm you might have known Rumi before. I don't know if you did or not, Dante. What, I mean, what do you think? What's your impression now that you've got a little, just a taste of Rumi? <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, I dig him a lot. Um, I just, I like the, the whole aspect of how he uh, describes love and, like, how we should be, like, like, it's, it's a dangerous thing only because I feel like it does shatter your ego a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what I kind of like about that. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on Rumi, even though he's not, like, new for you, Nick? No, I like it. Okay. I'm going to move on and only mention this next poet just because of time constraints. Um, If we are looking at, like, major contributors to Sufism during the Middle Ages and particularly Persian ones, uh, Saadi of Shiraz is kind of like the in-betweener. Now, was he like a Sufi? Kind of like Omar, it's debated. But he lived between 1210 and 1291, so he saw part of Rumi's life as well. Um, some argue he was actually just a regular Sunni that liked to challenge, uh, challenge institutions. His most famous works were called the Bustan and the Golestan. And they're basically like, kind of like explain his life of wandering. And this is something that actually a lot of Sufi also like to, they like to be travelers. Real quick, why is travel like oftentimes in some of these more like romantic understandings of the world seen as like a way to, honestly to achieve enlightenment or gain knowledge i mean even the buddha like went on like journeys and stuff like what why is that a thing shoot jesus wander in the desert like i mean these are there's numerous examples and this is straight up like we talk about this all the time joseph campbell and the hero's journey right Mm -hmm. leaving home is like this monumental action that serves to shatter your worldview and your perspective and you go out and experience different things that you would have never seen had you been at home, even we're gonna have an episode on the Situationists coming up soon. Mm-hmm. There's a really good article that talks about this uh, thing that they like to do, which was just to wander through the city and have chance encounters with other people and with the architecture and with the geography and how that they thought would lead to changing worldviews and so on. I like that. That makes sense. Anyway, I mean, the wandering was also a way for him to achieve knowledge, get to know people. He met with Sufi orders. He even met with crusaders because it's kind of the tail end of the crusades. He met with Mamluks, which are like 
Turkic slave warriors that eventually create their own like dynasty. He, he met with Mongols. Uh, he basically navigate, navigated the entire melting pot that became West Asia. Different religions, different peoples, different ethnicities. He wandered and he learned everywhere he went. Saadi was like kind of a romantic in that regard, but he also had some interesting things to say. I only have one quote for you all from Saadi because I do want to move on to to the last poet we're going to be talking about. But this comes from his work called the Bani Adam or Adam. The children of Adam are the members of each other and are from the same essence in their creation. When the conditions of the time hurt one of those members, other members will suffer from discomfort. If you are indifferent to the misery of others, it is not fitting that they should call you human. Nice. And this is from a dude, like I said, that went and met like crusaders and Mongol warriors and like, and this is what he come to. He, this is the, this is the conclusion he came to. Like, and, and I don't know that that's like anarchist or anything like that, but what I would argue is, is definitely, we are all in this together. We are all part of the same body. In this case, he uses Adam as the body, but like, that's super, I think it's cool. Anyway, the reason I bring up Rumi, we spent a lot of time on Rumi and we spent some time, like almost no time on Saudi, but sorry if you're a Saudi fan, which I know he is wildly popular to this day in, in, in where my family's from in Iran. Um, but yes, even more popular might be the next dude I'm going to talk about, Hafez, Hafez Ishirazi, which means he is, of course, from the city of Shiraz. He is called a theosophist, a theosophist, a Sufi theosophist. We got theology, we got philosophy. He's all of those things smashed together. He lived between 315 and three, th- or, excuse me, 1315 and 1390. And while knowing about like the masters I talked about just before, the Rumis and the uh, Saadis, uh, and maybe a little bit of Omar, although maybe not directly cited, he studied under a very famous uh, man named Haji Zain Alatar. And Hafez, for me to like explain his context a little little bit, he's living actually during a pretty violent time called the Timurid era in 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 Central Asia. The reason I emphasize this is once like the 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 fire's been put out by the various like the Crusades are kind of done, the Mongol invasions already happened, and they've done some awful things, but things are kind of settling down, and they're just running the show. Another super violent dude called Tamerlane comes along and starts just wrecking shop throughout the whole region. I mean, some, some historians attribute like 20 million deaths to this dude alone, like Genghis Khan, like level death. It's kind of weird. We don't talk a lot about him here in the West, but Tamerlane was like, he was something else. Anyway, this is, this, I'm giving you this context because Hafez is living during this like era, if that makes sense. There is also debate regarding Hafez, and I didn't tell you this debate when I gave both Dante and Nick the poetry to read, is it's super romantic and sometimes like just lovey-dovey. Some argue it's not romance, it's satire, and he's mocking people through this like ultra kind of like romantic thing. And we'll go through a couple of Hafez poems here in a second. In fact, let's just do it now, again, for time constraints. Hafez is here. Here's the context. He's living during a very violent era. He learned from Sufi masters before. He's challenging society. Here's some Hafez. In uh, the work we're reading from is called The Gates of Wisdom. Uh, and definitely, this is some Sufi stuff right here. All right. So one of the poems I kind of want to start out with real fast is called uh, Zephyr, Reach My Charming Gazelle and Say. Sorry, that's page seven for uh, you uh, following along at home. I'm just kidding. You're not following along at home. You don't have any to- any idea what I have in my hands. But 
We'll post a link to the, in yeah. the show notes. Zephyr, reach my charming gazelle and say, because of you I've wandered through hill and desert. Look kindly on my excitement and awe. Favor me with your sweet divine lips. You're so proud of your rose-like charm that you will never think to ask of your nightingale. Wise birds can't be caught by tricks or cunning, only by gentle, good-tempered love. Anyone who harps on their beauty and charm hides a lack of loyalty, friendship, true devotion. When you enjoy drinks with your caring friends, remember my love, consider my true feeling. There's no loyalty found in mere appearances, but Hafez, your sweet, sincere songs can move the angels themselves. That's self. De- that's like self-defacement there. He's like making fun of himself. So the only reason I really like that one is because it's even in his own poems that he knows other people are going to read, he is willing to like check his own ego. I, I don't know. What do you think? So that's super interesting because this is just connecting dots for me. There's an article by Peter Wilson titled Rose and the Nightingales Looking for Traditional Anarchism in Iran that we'll talk about next episode. But that must literally come from this poem because he says, you're so proud of your rose-like charm that you will never think to ask of your nightingale. It must come directly from that. That's a great connection. I, in fact, I've read that and I missed it. I missed that. Con- Look at Nick being the academic curator. I mean, I just saw it just now, but yeah. Okay. Oh, all right. All right. All right. What do you think, Dante? Yeah, I, I think... <laughs> I think that like when when you said that he was kind of uh, he makes fun of himself in like a lot of these things kind of satire. When I was reading this, I'm like, this don't seem like the traditional poetry that I really heard. But so it it makes sense now. It it totally makes sense. My heart is going wild is on page eight, the very next page. Um, My heart is going wild. Help me, oh masters. My secret love becomes revealed for all time. That first stanza right there. That's a joke. We are broken boats. You will not help us wind. Move on. Perhaps you'll be more useful to a friend. The love of this world lasts only a few days. It is all fantasy and sentiment. Be good to your friends while you still have the chance. How badly I want the morning's drink, said the nightingale last evening while surrounded by sweet flowers. Be grateful for the blessings you have, fortunate man. Help the poor mystic as much as you're able. There is happiness in heaven and earth if only two creeds are followed. Be just to your friend. Make peace with your foe. And if you have never reached the houses of fame and fortune, admit that you can't change what is written. When you feel miserable and self-pitying, drink wine, take pleasure. In this way, the pauper can find the richest secret. The cup of wine is like the mirror of Alexander, though he took the kingdom of Darius. Forgive me, O well-dressed priest, if it is the will of Allah, if my cloth is smeared with wine. There's a lot going on in there, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but there are some interesting points. Get drunk. He's telling this to a Muslim audience. Yeah, Why I was going to say, this yeah. is straight resistance, like poetry. Straight now, sometimes up. wine is seen as just merely a metaphor for love itself, but I don't know if it's a metaphor in this one. Well, like the last one. Yeah. Forgive me, O well-dressed priest. It is the will of Allah if my cloth is smeared with wine. Yeah. That is, it is resistance. I like it. I like it. And then he critiques like these two great empire builders of before, Alexander the Great, and for our audience, Darius the Great is was a Persian empire builder himself so like there's there's clear clearly a critique and advisement there for hafez so it is very anti-authoritarian in that regard i like brother believers on page 11 as well brother believers whatever shall we do the priest left the mosque for the tavern yesterday how can the believers turn to mecca to pray when our mullah turns to the tavern instead the joy of the beloved is insane we are madmen trapped in the curls of her hair It was written that we would find this life, 
All is written, and our lives prove this. The face of the beloved is grace. When I see it, I can see nothing but beauty around me. Does the fire of my size and the flame of the beloved shadow in me affect your stony hearts? If I had wondered if it might. Hafez, your sighs are darts that pierce time and space. How can anything stand against such power? <laughs> he is not that ego. He's not an egomaniac. That's kind of the point. Like he writes the poem and then he kind of like craps on himself to remind himself like, dude. Anyway, this is, this is actually, it's a really good one. Like what he's saying about the people that are like leading these religious ceremonies and stuff, the power structure, the storytellers is they're hypocrites. Or at least that's how I interpret it. What do you think? I like when he says, the joy of the beloved is insane. We are madmen trapped in the curls of her hair. I like that line, too. I like that line, too. What do you think, Dante? I think that, so, like, he is so, he, like, puts you on, gets you on, like, a mind fuck, kind of. Like, that's he what just, he does. Yeah, yeah, he does that. And it's, it's hard to, like, <laughs> some of it sometimes. It's like, all right. I don't know. It's like in the, actually I talk about this with my students a lot when we read the work The German Ideology by Marx because so much of it I guess not so much of it some of it is satire. Yeah. If you don't know that going into it like my students are like why is he shitting all over the German ideology? Like he's a German philosopher and I have to like explain to them the whole like you know yeah. what he's actually doing and that if you don't explain that in the beginning then you're completely lost because you can't figure it out. Yeah because like to, to that point like when he say like in, in the beginning the priest, the priest left the mosque, mosque for the tavern yesterday. I'm thinking like, are these people just like getting drunk? Get like, mm-hmm. like what is like? Cause it's, that's all. I was that's all in this uh, poetry is like getting drunk and going to the tavern. I'm like, oh, so he, like, so it's it's serving a couple purposes. Like getting drunk obviously is is considered like that's a problem in his society. Does he like drink all the time? Well, maybe he did. I don't know. But it, it that's. Yes, anti-authoritarian. Like, I'm going to do what I want. But it's also a metaphor. It's not just getting drunk for the sake of getting drunk. It's kind of like letting go of your inhibitions and maybe even like, yeah, annihilating the self. Like, the alcohol takes over. Like, love. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Uh, All right. So, we're not here doing Hafez. Did you have any of this that that you had maybe highlighted when I sent you this that you wanted to talk about that you thought? I honestly, like... Oh, here's another poem where he talks about nightingales. But anyways, the thing that I was astonished by is the amount that he talks about drinking. <laughs> so much so that it was either like he was writing this straight up because the consumption of alcohol was forbidden by the like faith, or it had to be like a metaphor for something else. Then I started reading them. Like to me, it makes much more sense if you read it as the alcohol is like a metaphor for love. And yeah, like just this excerpt right here. He says, those who condemn the drinkers will lose all their piousness and beliefs in the tavern. Like those who condemn the people that fall madly in love will understand it when they themselves do the same thing. Um, even the one that you read, uh, I forget what page it was on. Yeah, the, uh, the one on page eight, my heart is going wild. If you, frame it instead of using drink or wine etc and use Mm -hmm. love or even like i think it might be a a lot sexual and he's not saying that like the what is this the one two three fourth stanza 
How badly I want the morning's drink, said the nightingale last evening while surrounded by sweet flowers. Like, seriously? If there's not something sexual about that, then I don't know anything about poetry. Like, no, you it, know a lot about poetry. One reason why Hafez, so in Iran, where all three of these we've mentioned are, are like originally like writing in Persian and poetry is like the, that's the best art form or the highest art form. I would argue Hafez is the most popular of the poets we've read in Iran, especially for romantic reasons. Like that's the, like if you want, if you want, if you, if you're looking to, to, to hook up or meet people, you use Hafez poetry and that's, that's how you do it. So that's, Hafez is definitely used that way. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. I'm like, there's no way he's literally talking about drinking this much. Like, there's <laughs> no way it's all about drinking. I literally put that in my notes. I'm like, is, is the tavern a metaphor for like the world and are the drinkers like a metaphor for like, like everlasting love and like why are priests bad in here? It was mm-hmm. just like, like, especially this good news, uh, loving Nightingale, like the very like last, um, parts of it. That, that was the thing that was just like blew my mind. Like what? is he really saying like i was confused in a lot of this so i had a ton of questions it's multi-layered yeah. nick is 100 percent right his interpretation is right so as the the, the scholar here yes the love or excuse me wine is a metaphor for love 100 percent. hafez is definitely much more sexual so if if you were to argue like if you what part of the sufi soul all of these guys kind of represent hafez represents like the body of the sufi soul he kind of wants to get down whereas rumi represents the intellect of the sufi soul if that makes sense that's usually how it's framed does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, but yes. And then the second part is alcohol is also a good metaphor for a couple of reasons. A, it's anti-establishment to drink at the time. And then B, alcohol itself, its its effects also cause you to kind of like lose your sense of self a little bit. Yeah. So it's like the perfect metaphor. Okay. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's Hafez. I want to kind of get moving so we can kind of wrap up this, this, this history episode. I don't know that we did it all the justice we could, but hopefully the audience kind of sees – and as well as Nick and Dante see like how Sufism has certain establishments and elements and undertones of anti-authoritarianism, maybe even agnosticism, maybe even nihilism, especially when we get to the Middle Ages. Um, as far as where Sufism goes from the Middle Ages during this like golden era, it is eventually spread through North Africa, even into Spain. It's also spread east into what we would now say modern day Pakistan and India. Um, and it is, it is far ranging and it remains popular in a lot of these places. Sufism, even for a brief period of time, some would argue dabbled in something weird, kind of violence, colonialism, and statecraft. It's debatable, but I do feel like I need to mention it super quickly. When it spread to India, um, it doesn't spread necessarily violently. That's not what I'm saying. But it, it dates back as far as the 8th century and making its way into India. It had made inroads into the subcontinent. But Sufism's rise during the Middle Ages, also it rose in India during this period of time. And it was concurrent with Turkic invasions of India that eventually formed something called the Delhi Sultanate. Long story short, it's when, at least in North India, Muslims ruled North India uh, through a series of different sultanates. Basically, kingships is what I'm saying. The only reason I'm mentioning this is many of those sultans, those kings, would consult with Sufi tariqas or orders on how they should rule, which is super weird. But I do feel like I need to mention it that they would consult with Sufi Sufi tariqas or basically like religious scholars on how they should be ruling. And this lasts from like 1206 to 1526. One could argue that these Sufi tariqas in, in India are not 
true Sufi, I guess, in this individualized way, or some could argue they're actually true Sufi by following the practice of trying to educate and enlighten. But I do feel like I should mention it. The other thing that would seem very, un the other example of un-anarchist Sufi practice is, we're back in Iran, a specific tariqa or order is established called the Safavid uh, order, which is led by a, originally by a, a Sufi man named Safi al-Din of Ardabil in the 14th century. The reason I'm bringing this dude up is he dies and eventually like, again, people take his teachings and interpret them differently and they alter beliefs uh, for ensuing generations until ultimately the Safavid, because of their, uh, their, their, their context, they decide that they are going to, um, I guess challenge the, the prevailing institutions of their time. They're feeling oppressed by a whole host of different actors, namely the Ilkhanid Mongol dynasty. And they feel like being true Sufi will not allow them the ability to fight back. So they eventually convert from Sufism to Shiism, which is a much more like, it, I don't want to say it's like militant or aggressive, but, but it allows them a little bit more gravity in terms of creating a social movement for their liberation because Shiism is kind of like a branch of Islam that is about like, yeah, it's about liberation of a certain uh, oppressed group of people. So in this case, the reason I'm mentioning this is these Sufi to, to liberate themselves from what they consider to be oppression actually have to convert to Shiism to do so successfully. And that actually creates the Safavid dynasty that rules Iran for about 200 years. And for those that are wondering, and it's, it's, this is just a piece of trivia, the reason Iran is a predominantly 12-er Shia country to this day is because of that revolution where these Sufi become Shia and then establish themselves in Iran. So most people don't know that. Iran hasn't been Shia the whole time. It started in 1501 under the leadership of a dude named Shah Ishmael I. Anyway, those are two little asides that I do feel like I needed to men be mentioned. But Sufism is widespread around the world. I would argue it's not as widely known um, here in the West as maybe some people think. And what people do know about it in the West is through an Orientalist lens where we kind of over-romanticize it just like we just did in this episode. But whatever. It's super cool. Um, we also know that in certain places, Sufi are heavily persecuted. Um, they're persecuted heavily in very like religious and fundamentalist, um, states like Saudi Arabia is not a huge champion of, of Sufi beliefs. It tends to be places that practice a very specific type of Sunni Sharia law called Hanbalism. Like, so the Wahhabi of Saudi Arabia, if, if, if they follow this. And so they would consider some Sufi thinking heretical and that heresy must be punished. Um, believe it or not, sadly, two of the places where Sufism grew the most and where it comes from during its golden era, Iran and Turkey, also have a spotty history in sometimes persecuting Sufi, uh, Sufi um, followers. Turkey is less guilty of it now only because um, in Turkey, specific types of Sufi orders do this like whirling dervish thing where they enter this meditative state and they spin nonstop. It's a dance called the Sema. Super cool. YouTube it. Watch it. Anyway, it became a super big tourist draw. And so it's bringing money into into the Republic of Turkey. So they've become a little bit less hard, hard line. And now you can go to like Istanbul or Ankara and, and, and as a tourist, go see 
Sufi orders practice this Sema. Iran has become, again, it's spotty. Like, for the most part, like, it's not nearly as persecuted. We're not talking like Arabia levels of persecution, but it's not celebrated at the level of other branches of Islam, predominantly Shia Islam. Anyway, as far as how does Sufi practice, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Some practice, each order, each dervish, each ascetic practice differently. I just brought up the whirling dervishes of Turkey. They practice their meditation through this whirling trance. Some practice the traditional five pillars of Islam, which is like bear witness, prayer, fast, um, charity and pilgrimage. Like, like those are the five pillars. Some practice that traditional five pillars. Some uh, follow the ideas of Rumi and individualize regimens to overcome their sense of self. It's different wherever you are in the world. I would say some of the like most celebrated Sufi in the world now find themselves in Morocco or Pakistan. So if our listeners want to know more about like Sufism today, look at Moroccan Sufism and Pakistani Sufism. Um, even like Kuali music would be like uh, something you could research and really like dig into like how Sufism is practiced as far as like the 21st century is concerned. But as we draw this episode to a conclusion, I want to preview the second part of the episode uh, or the second series in this, in this episode where we try and either connect or maybe we do disconnect Sufism's applicability or perhaps reflexive, reflexive relationship with anarchism as we try and argue can anarchism have spiritual spirituality in it? We argued maybe with the Tao. Maybe we'll argue it can with Sufism. But as we close out, based on what we know about Sufism's history, do you think we're on the right track? Do you have any ideas? What are your thoughts, Nick and Dante? I think we're going to discover probably just like you do with Taoism that there are like anarchist like threads throughout Sufism probably. Um, yeah, I think that's what we're going to be looking at for sure. I think, I think, I think so. Especially if we look at uh, a lot of this uh, affairs, <laughs> like we can probably find a lot of stuff in there. So, I, I think maybe it, it'll be something that we can dive into. I mm -hmm. think so. All right, anarchism aside, what are your just general thoughts on Sufism? Since it, since since I know you had learned a lot about it before, like I, I made you read some stuff, and then we go through this podcast. You probably only even read about it, like kind of like glossily, because I mm -hmm. just always mention that I like it. What do you think? Mm -hmm. It's so complex because there's so many different ways that people practice it. It's and even like over historical time that it's hard to kind of get a grasp on. But I don't think that that makes it unique in like religious practice. That's true for all of them. Um, I love parts of it. Like I love reading Rumi and thinking about the destruction of the ego and the self and etc. My main sticking point, because I don't agree with it, is the fact that it hinges upon Allah in this case, right? The ultimate like divine being. So that I think we're gonna have to debate whether or not that is quote unquote acceptable as if we're the last word somehow uh, within like an anarchism. I like it. I like it a lot because I feel like even if it has like religious like overtones <laughs> or it, it's, it is yeah, religious. It yeah, is a religion. Even if it yeah. have religious overtones, I feel like us, that aside the spiritual aspect for me is what I find the most value in all the stuff that we read today. And I feel like that in itself kind of lends to like how, like in, in anarchism, how we can like build a bridge instead of like always burning bridges, which we love doing. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I feel like that's, that's a good way to. Well, the urge to destroy is also a creative urge. So. <laughs> oh, God. 
<laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, maybe with that joke, we'll, we'll we'll head on out of here. So this is part one of two. Again, second episode. Can Sufism and anarchism, like, is there a relation? Can they coexist? Can one, like, do they influence each other? We don't know. We're going to talk about it next episode. Nick's going to take us out. Yeah, find us online, revolutionandideology.com. Hit us up on Twitter, at Rev and Ideology. The best thing you can do if you enjoyed listening to this episode or you enjoy the work that we do is just share our podcast with your friends, share it on social media, tell people about it, leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. That helps us find people uh, the best. We also have a YouTube channel. You can just Google it or find it on our website and subscribe to that. If you really, really love what we do, you can support us on Patreon. Uh, and send us some of your hard-earned dollars to give us some more time and resources to uh, make some more episodes. So we'll see you next time. I'm Nick. Jared. I'm Dante. Later.